I want to talk today about coming back to the heart of worship. You know, one of the hardest things about this pandemic for me over the last six months or so is the lack of corporate worship. I've just found it really hard not being able to do this uh, to such an extent that often when I see or hear corporate worship now, I feel overwhelmed and I find the tears just well up. And it's not helped being back in Jago House at all, I've got to say, although several of us teared up when the band first struck up on that first morning back, but it's hardly back. We can't sing, we can't express ourselves, and when we're off screen we have to wear masks, and well, it just isn't church. And it's left me asking a whole lot of questions about worship. I mean, what is it really? If we can't sing, then what else do we have? If that's where we've got to, then and if that's where we've got to, then what is wrong with our worship? Is that all it's become? I've really been struck by that song that Matt Redman wrote a few years ago. And it goes like this, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. And the chorus goes, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry for the thing that I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And how curiously prophetic is that song for our time? And that line, I'm sorry for the thing, I've made it. Is that it? A kind of version of worship where we've made it all about ourselves, or we've made it all about the music or the experiencing of worship, rather than worship itself, which is all about you, Jesus. And is this something that God wants to deal with and and bring us back to the heart of worship? And certainly this question that's led me into Ezra and Nehemiah in the first place a few months ago, especially the chapter that we come to today, chapter 3, where the people returned after 70 years of exile and began worshipping together for the first time and assumed that nothing will have changed, that everything was back to normal. I mean, we've only had seven months and it's been hard enough. Can you imagine 70 years and so when we get back together, will it, will it still be the same? Will something, anything have changed? Or will it just be business as usual? Or has God got a plan to do something amongst us during this time of scattering? For the people returning from exile, it all gets off to a really good start in chapter 3. The band starts up with a song they all know and love. And then things get a little weird And it gets very confusing. Ezra chapter 3 verse 11 says, With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good and his love towards Israel endures forever. And it says that all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen The former temple, he's talking about Solomon's temple, wept aloud 
when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one, it says, could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So what's going on here? I mean, why all the confusion? Why the happy sad? Was it that the old people were just harking back to better days and they just needed to get with it? Or was there something in their sadness that the other people should have paid attention to? And I found myself fascinated with this question. And I've read many commentators who've criticized the older people in this passage for having a bad attitude. And I've seen many preachers pick up on this theme and use it to blast traditionalists in the church. But are they right? Well, let's back up a bit and see what's led to this point. And so I want to take a bit of time to set this out. And then I want to come on to some challenges for us and then some applications. So backing up, first of all, we've seen that Nebuchadnezzar put Judah into exile. He destroyed the temple that Solomon had built, removing their altar, burning down their city, which was now a ruin, and its walls were broken down. But God moves sovereignly on the heart of King Cyrus, who in chapter 1 sends back the first group of people, along with Zerubbabel, whose name means born of Babylon. Now Zerubbabel, who possibly worked for the king, was sent by Cyrus with a very specific task to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. And along with this command, the king also provided a lot of the finances and the resources to get the job done. And in the returning crowd were a bunch of willing priests who immediately started work rebuilding the altar on its previous foundation so that the daily sacrifices could be restarted in accordance with the law of Moses. And they did this despite their fear of the people around them. They were out in the open air, a bit like here in Jago House with all the windows open, <laughs> as the foundations of the new temple were not, let yet, not yet laid. And the priests also started the clock on the temple calendar again with all their feast days and observances. And it was like their leaders said, well, that's worship sorted now. On with the temple. And within a fairly short time, the foundations of the new temple were laid, which is the point at which they decided to have this big worship service, which had mixed reviews. Some were weeping and some with shouts of joy, which is where we started. And you can just imagine the leaders' confusion as they sat down and reflected. and said, well, what went wrong? We, we set it up right, altar, check. We obeyed the legal requirements for a worship service. Check. We restarted the church calendar. Check. We're getting the temple going. It's almost there. So why is it not happening for some of these troublesome older people? Surely it wasn't just about the building, which was only at foundation stage anyway. And it would never be as grand as Solomon's. But surely it wasn't that. No, it was something else that was missing, something that the older people remembered and the younger people had never experienced at the time when Solomon's temple had been built. So let's go back and have a look at that then, Solomon's temple. It's in 
1 Kings chapter 6 to 8. And first of all, we have all this extravagance of wealth in chapter 6 to 7, high quality workmanship. Uh, lampstands of pure gold. Everything was gold. There was a gold altar. There was a gold temple, beautiful floral work. All of it was gold. Money was no object for Solomon. And we're told that the treasuries of the temple were filled with silver and gold and precious things. It's almost like they didn't know what to do with all their wealth, and so they just stored them away in the temple. And and how many people know how important it is for churches these days to have good storage solutions? So, okay, Zerubbabel's temple wasn't as grand, and there's no sign of this golden altar, but it's not until we get to chapter 8 that we see what's really missing from Zerubbabel's temple Something that the formulas of worship and the structure of the temple could never provide. And that was the Ark of God, chapter 8. This is what we have front and center before anything else. Before the sacrifices in Solomon's temple have even begun. Before the worship has even started. Before the church calendar has even been suggested. Solomon summons the elders of Israel and all those in authority and said, Bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion. Bring it. And then the sacrifices began. Let me read you what happened next. It says in verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 8, When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought the ark of the Lord and the tent of meetings and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they couldn't count them. In verse 6, the priests then brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Then jump forward to verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple, his presence came, his presence came. They couldn't function anymore because his presence came. And you see, the ark is what was missing from Zerubbabel's temple. As Ezra tells us, the people made so much noise, the sound was heard far away, but there was no presence of God. There was no cloud, no glory as the Lord filled the temple. No priest was unable to perform their service in that atmosphere. God just wasn't there, it seemed. No wonder the older people who remembered the previous temple wept and wailed. They knew what had been lost. The ark had been lost, and although they had been released from their exile physically, spiritually, God was still far from them. He wasn't amongst them. See, it had never been about the law of Moses, It had never even been about the temple or even their status as the chosen people of God. It had always been his presence amongst them that centered their worship and distinguished them from all the other peoples on the earth. Anything else was a poor substitute. I really feel for Zerubbabel because he only did what he'd been told. 
But do you think he had any real idea of the prophetic significance of the new temple that was prophesied by Ezekiel and Zechariah? Did he really have any concept of the coming Messiah whose life would eventually be laid down on the altar, dying once for all, no longer requiring silver and gold, but the price of God's own son? Did the people have any idea of the new Ark of the Covenant that was to come, where God's presence would come and fill not just a box, but a people? I don't think he had any idea of what was to come in Christ in those closing years of the Old Testament, which Ezra, Nehemiah was written in and their people lived through. But we do. And as we live in some extent in our own form of exile so that we can't gather, I think it's right for us to look at our own worship and say, what is the thing that we've made it? For Zerubbabel, born of Babel, who have had never lived through, through those earlier days of the presence of God flooding the temple. He could so easily have looked at this and, and come to some wrong conclusions about worship. He could have said, well, it's about the format of our meetings. He took the inspiration from the law of Moses and followed it all exactly. This will do it. He got some priests to set up an altar, sorted, <laughs> but the glory didn't come. Well, it's about the style of our worship then. He'd heard about the modern music, the lighting and the smoke machines. He even threw in a few feast days to add a party atmosphere. And it was very loud. The old people complained. (laughs) But the glory still didn't come. Well, it must be about the buildings that we meet in. It's got to be modern and flashy. None of those large religious buildings. Let's go rustic and hipster. That'll do it. But even at foundation stage, this thing isn't going anywhere and the people start harping on about the glory of the former temple that they'd seen. Didn't they they read Haggai, which says the glory of the future temple would be even greater? Now, obviously, I'm using a big dose of imagination in what I've said, but do you get the point? The assumptions that we make about our worship lead us into the thing that we have made it. So what kind of things are we talking about? What is, what is worship? Now, I know that's a huge question to deal with here today in the short time that I have. But let me just say this. Worship isn't about our Sunday meetings and the format that we have made it. Three songs, some contributions, and then we stop. <laughs> worship is not just about the music or the atmosphere that we create. It's, it's not just about the feelings or the experience of worship. Not that any of those things in and of themselves are wrong. But the question is more, can we worship without them? As Matt writes in his song, when the music fades, <laughs> when all is stripped away, have we still got worship? Are we able to worship without instruments, without the crowd around us? Is his presence enough. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been asking all these kinds of questions as I've struggled to sing along to a computer screen. As I stand at Jager House with a gag on my mouth, and I, I've said, well, what is worship? What is, what is my worship if I don't have these other things? And I've had to admit, I have to admit that I've ended up agreeing with Matt Redman's line and say, I'm sorry for the thing that I've made it. I'm sorry. 
I realize that these props have become my worship. (laughs) And the more I've thought about it, the more convinced I've become that this is something that God really wants us to think about in this time when we're scattered, in this time when we're simply not able to worship in the way that we have before. Now, I think it's time for us to take stock of our worship. I'm not talking corporately at the moment. We don't have that opportunity But as individual believers, there's something that says we need to come back to something in our personal walk with God rather than give up saying, how can I worship when I can't go to church? I think there's something in that. Coming back to the heart of worship isn't about a church meeting, although wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) But he's calling us back to himself. He wants to do something in each of us so that eventually when we do come back together, we won't be like a desert running dry in our walk with God, but a river in flood that's about to burst its banks. That's how I want us to come back together. Out of an outflow, out of an outflow of his goodness. We need to come back to the heart of worship. We need to come back to that place. And what does that mean for us? Well, Matt gets us started in his chorus. I don't think I've ever preached from a song before, but here we go. He says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. That's his testimony. He's even written a book about it now, I think. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Is that enough? Is that enough? All about you? It's not about me. It's not about how I feel or whether I want to worship or not today. It's all about you, Jesus. And that's the first thing. And we could spend so long talking about worship. But this is the main thing, that worship is about Jesus. Now, Jesus is the ultimate model for our worship in laying down his life. It's about sacrifice. And in this way, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, that's how you say it, isn't it? Zerubbabel got it right. He started with the altar and the sacrifice for sin. And ultimately, this is what worship is about, the sacrifice of a life laid down, and a life laid down sacrificially, which leads us, of course, straight into Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul says, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That says it all, doesn't it? This is how we worship. This is how we worship every day. So right right where you are, why don't we just stop for a moment and just offer ourselves again? Say, here I am, Lord, offering myself, literally, my body as a living Holy Spirit carrier of his presence everywhere that I go. Because that's my true and proper worship, offering myself. Here I am, Lord, what do you want me to do? Offer up my body as a living sacrifice, as a temple of your presence. Here I am, Lord. Here's my worship today. It's about Jesus. 
It's about Jesus. It's about our relationship with him. So worship is about a relationship, not a formula. Jesus, of course, is our model of relationship with God. He says, as I often say these, these, these words, he says, I only do what I see the Father do. And he lived in a continual place of awareness of the Father's presence in his life so that he followed the Father in all that he did. I don't want to appear overly critical of Zerubbabel because he was a man of his era, but the contrast still applies that relationship with God is not what he emphasized. Now, what Zerubbabel emphasized in his lack of understanding was religious observance that followed the law. That's not what worship is. But even for us, I think that we can get a bit religious about the form of worship, or we can become a a bit religious even about the experience of worship. It's got to be a particular way, and we get lost in the crowd rather than in a relationship. Because after all, why do we need a personal relationship if we're carried along by the crowd? It's about your relationship. You know, worship must never be escapism, but the ultimate realism. Finding God in all that we do, finding him. So how are we doing with this? You know, how is your relationship without the gathered church? How is your relationship with him? And finally, worship is about his presence. You know, Jesus won't turn up just because we have the right formula for a church service. He must captivate our hearts. He must be the central focus of our deepest affections. He must be pursued and his presence waited upon until he comes. I also think we need to keep hearing from some of our older people with their stories of the early days uh, of the moving of the spirit, the charismatic movement that has contributed so much to the style of sung worship that many of us still enjoy today. Because it was a movement of his presence in the Holy Spirit, an outpouring. You know, many of our older people will tell us how it started with simple songs, often unaccompanied or repetitive. But it was those early days of delight and freedom that we learnt about spirit-led worship. And we mustn't forget our roots. We need to keep hearing from some of the older people like Terry Virgo about the importance of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. He's spoken so many times in recent days urging us to keep what many of his generation won back for the church. We need to hear from people like Dave Fellingham, one of the first early worship leaders and were songwriters of those early days. He, he, would keep, he keeps talking about how God would move through those meetings and people would be set free from demonic powers. We need to keep remembering those stories. We even need to hear from David Carr and his warnings about some of the lost doctrines that he's concerned about. Doctrines of repentance and sin, which so many are scared to speak about in this era of political correctness and the fear of upsetting people. 
And we need to hear from these people, not out of a sentimental good old days place, but out of a genuine desire to keep the fire in what we've had and to keep reminding ourselves that without the Spirit, without His presence in our lives, our worship too is just a loud noise or worse, a well-known religious formula. His presence. His presence must be the most important thing. His presence is what must distinguish us, distinguish us from all the other groups in the world that meet together. His presence. So let me ask you, as you're away from the gathered church, so many of us, we all are actually, are you seeking him? Are you seeking his presence? Are you waiting for him? Are you worshipping him? It's all about Jesus. It's all about that relationship. And it's all about his presence. It's about pursuing the presence of God. Zerubbabel thought it was about the formula. He thought it was about the temple. He thought it was about getting all right and then the glory would come. But that isn't how the glory comes. The glory comes through Jesus by relationship through the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd love to pray for you. I wish I could be close to you all right now because the presence of God is is just on, on me. I just feel his presence on me right now and And I just want to reach out now and and ask the Holy Spirit to come upon each of you. Come and bless you. Come and encourage you. Father, we, we just release your presence here right now. Holy Spirit, will you just come? Father, will you cause your presence to come upon each and every one just watching this video right now? Why don't you just put your hand on your heart and say, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come on me. Make me a worshiper. Make me a worshipper who pursues Jesus, who pursues relationship with you, who pursues his presence. This week, Lord, I offer myself to you. Here I am, Lord. This is my reasonable act of worship. In Jesus' name.